I'm used to seeing you guys an hour later. It's, it's just weird. wonder how many people didn't set their clocks. That's crazy. Well, get your Bibles open. We've got a great, a great study for you, Mark chapter 10, verse 46. This is Mark's biography of Jesus. It's the first news that was written uh, and published into a book. Uh, it was published when most of the people that knew Jesus personally were still alive. Uh, Mark leaned heavily into St. Peter as his number one eyewitness, uh, so we feel that this gospel uh, is so authentic and, uh, and such a real view um, of Jesus. Mark spent a lot of his time on things that Jesus did, whereas some of the other gospel writers give us things that Jesus said. It's as if Mark believed that what Jesus did uh, was the most important thing. And at this, at this point in the biography, we are approaching Passover. And you may know that Passover is that Jewish holiday. It's still celebrated every year about the time we celebrate Easter. And uh, it's, uh, it's when Jewish people celebrate how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And on that last night in Egypt, uh, they followed Moses' instructions, sacrificing lambs. And the blood on the doorposts of their house was the signal to the death angel to, to pass over their house, and, and, and their children were protected. Now, in today's story, Jesus is in Jericho on his way to, to Jerusalem to be there for his last uh, Passover. As a matter of fact, on Passover weekend is when he is arrested and tried and crucified, and on the Sunday of Passover weekend is when uh, he rose from the dead. Now, he had, he had warned his closest followers that all this was going to happen. As a matter of fact, he tells them this on three separate occasions at least, exactly what was going to happen, including the details of what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. But when it actually happened, they were all surprised. Um, they didn't see it coming. And I don't know why they didn't. I think it was just too unusual a thing for them to imagine. And uh, so it just didn't register in their mind that it was really going to happen, and it was going to happen so soon. Um, but Jesus is not shocked at all. He has set his face for the cross. He is, he is moving rapidly toward what anyone else would uh, run from, because it is the purpose that he came. Uh, he came to be that Passover lamb for us, and uh, not only to protect us from death, but to that his bloodshed would be that sacrificial uh, offering made for our sins to free us from the bondage of, of sin. All right, so we're in Jericho. We're 18 miles from Jerusalem. The, a crowd is gathered uh, when a blind man named Bartimaeus starts calling out the name of Jesus. And we've been singing all morning about the name of Jesus. And if you're new to even that phrase, we're not just saying the name of Jesus, like Jesus. We're saying everything that's around who he is. His name represents his reputation, his power, his authority, his love, his compassion, uh, his, 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 the right he has to judge at the end of all things. The name of Jesus is what we call upon, and that's why sometimes even when we close our prayers, we'll say, in Jesus' name. You may have heard a Christian do that, in Jesus' name. And what they mean is, I'm saying with this, with authority, that God will do what we've just talked about. So this guy is on the side of the road, and he's, he's, he's a blind man, so he's staying off to the side, uh, and, but he's calling out to Jesus in, in, in this crowd, and he knows Jesus is coming by. All of his other senses are alerted, 
And uh, he's, he's Jesus, he cries out, have mercy on me. Son of David, he calls him. And son of David means not only uh, descendant of David, but, but, but future king, he's saying. Have mercy on me. And uh, just a desperate cry from a desperate man who truly believes that this, this traveling rabbi has the power, the ability to heal him from his blindness. And he, he makes such a ruckus that it gets annoying to the crowd. And someone in the crowd, you know, speaks over to him to pipe down. But he refuses to do it. And finally Jesus says, hey, you know what? Bring that guy over here. And so when they're, they're finally face to face, Jesus asks him a question that is, that is so much like Jesus. And the question is this, what do you want me to do for you? Leave it to Jesus to ask the obvious question. The guy is so obviously blind. And this isn't the, 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 the first time Jesus has asked someone uh, a question like this. He sometimes appears to be messing with people where everyone else can see, what do you mean, what do you want? Look what he, he needs. But it's as if the guy needs to say it. What do you want me to do for you? And, the, and, the, and, and Bartimaeus is his name, son of a man named Timaeus. Uh, he says, I want you to heal me. I want you to heal my eyes. I've never been able to see. And I know you can heal me. Like you healed all those other people. And Jesus responds in such a beautiful way. He says, well then go. Your faith has healed you. And the guy can, could see so in the, in the past 10 weeks, we've, we've all observed Jesus uh, bringing health to all kinds of people with all kinds of disabilities. And today in Jericho, he takes time for one more person in need, and the Lord gains, gains a brand new follower, uh, a man who answered well when Jesus asked him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this is the same question that he asked James and John in the study last weekend. Remember James and John, the sons of thunder. They, 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 they come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, we have a request. And he's like, what? what? What do you want me to do for you? And they said, well, you know, we were just kind of thinking, uh, you're going to be the king someday, and we would like to be right there with you. Um, you know, we've been, we've been following you around. We're obviously two of your favorites and so uh, when you come into your kingdom and, you know, you're sitting on a throne, uh, James here is thinking that he'd like to have the throne uh, on your left. And I was thinking, you know, if no one else is asked, uh, I'd like to have the throne uh, on the right. And Jesus said, that's not going to happen. You don't even know what you guys are saying. Uh, uh, my kingdom is coming, uh, you know, pretty soon, and my throne is a cross, and my crown is made of thorns. So, um, so yeah, it's not gonna happen. But then, the, this guy comes along, Bart, and he asks Jesus, Jesus says, what do you want me to do and, 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 and for you? And, and, and Bart says, I need my eyesight, and that was the right request. And immediately, he could see. Okay, so here we are, seven minutes and 32 seconds into this sermon, and we're already at our first takeaway. Uh, it's a question I want to ask you. Can I ask you a question? Okay. Uh, and those of you who didn't respond, just cover your ears, because apparently you don't want me to ask you a question. Uh, and the question is, is, is a simple one. If that was you that day, if you were like Bartimaeus, and, and, and you found yourself standing in front of Jesus, and Jesus is saying to you, 
what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? What, what, what would you ask for? What, what thing is in your life? What impossible thing is in your life right now? What, uh, maybe you would be asking for your daughter something, something she's struggling with. What, would you want me, what do you want me to, to do for you? How many of you can think of a, of a question? It doesn't, it's not hard. It's even why you come to church all the time. You've been crying out to God for something. Some of it's a little harder because we're not in a, such a, a needy time. But anytime we gather, about half of us are in, a, in great need. It's not hard for us to say, I'll tell you exactly what I would want Jesus to do for me. Well, have faith. I mean, you're talking about the guy whose na- very name means God to the rescue. That's what Yeshua means, God coming to the rescue. So if you could ask him to rescue you today from something, from anything, what would it be? You know, that's how we're going to reach the East Bay. The East Bay is wealthy. The East Bay, uh, some, of, some think that they, they, they don't need God. Why would they need God? And it's not until our neighbors, our friends, our community members, our coworkers, come to a place of great need that, that all of a sudden they say, wait, you know, somebody needs to, to help me. Somebody needs to, to rescue me. And that's where a whole uh, community of rescued people could be out there um, bringing salvation to people. If we could just identify who it is today that's crying out to Jesus and then get him in front of Jesus. Can you think of a friend or a coworker, family member, who they may not be crying out to Jesus yet, but they sure ought to be because of what they're going through. You know, so many of Jesus' um, followers, I mean, I, I think the ones who worshiped him the most intensely, they were the ones who had been rescued from the greatest things. It's like, it, it, it's like their appreciation hadn't, hadn't gone away. Uh, I think of Mary Magdalene, and, and, and uh, you talk about uh, celebrating women in history. Jesus had rescued her from these demons that were tormenting her. And uh, her love for Christ even has been misinterpreted by authors as being a romantic sort of thing. It was beyond that. It was the worship of a God. It was the worship of, 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 of not just a man, but of her healer, her savior, her deliverer. The only one who could save her from these powerful forces that were attacking her. But there are others. I think of Lazarus, who had been rescued from an early death, and he, he had been dead for four days when Jesus rescued him. But there are others. Um, uh, Zacchaeus would tell you that Jesus rescued him from his greed and, and the loneliness that was attached to that greed. Um, so many. And, and, and so many of you. Uh, has Jesus rescued you from anything? How many of you would say, I'm, one of, I'm a rescue story. I could tell you exactly what Jesus did for me when I cried out to him. How many of you would say, if you called on me right now, I could stand and tell you a story of my rescue? You know, you're like, I don't know. I'm not going to call on you. I just want to know who you are. Okay, ma'am. Um, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. You can always trust pastors.
you know, you need to tell that story more. Your rescue story is a powerful story, and you don't tell it enough. You think, oh, who would want to hear it? I think there are people that would want to hear how Jesus came through for you. You know, Cornerstone is packed full of people uh, who, who Jesus has saved. I was thinking of Ashley on our, our Hayward campus. You know, when we met Ashley, uh, she's a single mom, two kids, she's homeless. And uh, our, our, our Cornerstone folks, they go to this transitional uh, uh, home of this place uh, in Hayward, and they just take hot meals, and, but they don't just drop off the meals, they go and they hang out. And they take their kids, and the kids play with the kids, and, and they just, they, they show love and respect, and they just have a good time, and, and it's not this heavy, hey, poor person, who has some food. It's like, it's like, hey, other human being. Um, I, I made this in my house, in my stove. Remember when you had a house in a stove? And we made this for you, and we're going to sit down and eat this with you, and, and we're just going to talk. And, and so there were some Cornerstone folks talking to Ashley that day, and, and somebody just invited her to church. And sure enough, she showed up with her kids. And uh, she's a little afraid of church. Church had been a place where she had always felt ashamed of herself, where she had always felt less than, where her kids, her kids are absolute terrors, by the way. Um, no, I'm just saying. But her kids were never really, you know, it's always kind of like not well-behaved enough for mass or for service or whatever. And so she had avoided church, and that was the very place she needed to be, but she needed to be at a good church. And when she met our congregation in Hayward, she says she'd never met people like this before. She never felt the love of Christ coming through human beings before. That's exactly what she needed, and she never looked back. And um, now she's there every Sunday, and her kids come in, and Pastor Paul Lux, who himself was a terror, I knew him as a child, you know, he wrestles them to the ground and he's giving them the kind of love that they need. And, and then they run off to their class and she goes into the auditorium and worships with her newfound family. And through Cornerstone Hayward, she's found a place to live, a job, uh, uh, employment. But you know the most important thing? She's found Jesus. She's found healing from her past. Because that's what was holding her back. Come to find out, it was, this, it was psychological things that were holding her back. Spiritual forces that were holding her back. And now in April, we're baptizing Ashley and her daughter, Layla. And uh, it's powerful what happens. You know, I was thinking of Jake. Uh, I was talking yesterday to Jake, uh, and you wouldn't know it. If you, if you meet Jake now, you, you won't believe what I'm about to tell you, but it's, it's absolutely true. Jake was once addicted to drugs. He turned to drugs as a child, as a very young man. I don't know if he was even a teenager yet when Jake started uh, experimenting with drugs because he's, his childhood was so painful, he was trying to escape. And, uh, and Jake ended up in so much trouble, in and out of correctional facilities, um, you know, moved to Colorado, came back. Uh, and his brother was in Colorado, and his brother had gotten straightened out, his older brother, and his brother took him to church. And just said, Jake, you're going with me to church. And Jake saw whatever. So he goes to church. He told me that that night in church, he was as high as he could be on mushrooms. And he said, I'm just sitting there seeing things and whatever. And he said, the pastor started preaching, and I was instantly sober. And he said, I, I was being impressed that the pastor was speaking God's words to me. And I said, was it comforting? He goes, oh, absolutely not. It scared the hell out of me. He goes, 
I, I was there. He goes, first of all, I was sober, which I, when I shouldn't be. And then secondly, what I was hearing from God is, you are at a crossroads. This is, this is your last chance. You need to straighten up. You're, you're going to die very early if you don't. If you don't and, and he said, I cried out to God. And, uh, and his life turned around that night. Soon, soon, soon he was volunteering uh, at the church. And come to find out, he was a magnet for other young people. And, uh, and here we are now several years later. Jake's our youth pastor in Danville at our at Danville campus, and he's killing it because he's got that, he, he sees right through these kids, and they know his story, and they're flocking to our youth group in Danville because this, this young man has become uh, one who will tell them to cry out to Jesus, and, and he helps them. Um, like, he's, like, he's like Bartimaeus. I, I can't wait to meet this guy in heaven because we don't know no one tells us what happened. We know his name, and the reason we know his name is that he would have become part of the church. Otherwise, he would have just been another anonymous person that Jesus healed that the disciples never got to know. <clears throat> but there they are. And when Jesus left Jericho that day, Bartimaeus just went with him. He just walked away from uh, uh, everything in Jericho. He probably didn't have much and just started following Jesus right up that Jericho road to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been to the Holy Land, you know that the Jericho Road to Jerusalem is about 18 miles, and it, it's just a steady climb. Jericho is the lowest city on earth. Uh, it's 850 feet below sea level. When you're going down to Jericho, your ears pop, uh, and you get down in there, and you're, you're 850 feet below sea level there, and, uh, and then to Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. And so the road to Jerusalem, especially during this season, would have been packed with folks getting ready to go to Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is the number one place to celebrate Passover, and there they are on their way. And the party starts on the road. So you're walking along with all these people that are coming from the north and from uh, the east, and you're headed, in, uh, you're headed west towards Jerusalem, just across the top of the Dead Sea. And you're going in, and you're climbing, and you come out of the desert, and just when the vegetation starts, and you start seeing some nice, beautiful trees, you climb just over what's called the Mount of Olives. We, you know, in California, we'd call it the, the Hill of Olives. Uh, it's not even as high as Mount Diablo, I mean, as far as the climb. But there you are in the Mount of Olives, and you come over the Mount of Olives, and you get this view. This is the view we get uh, when we, we go into Jerusalem. And we even, t we even, we even um, make it so that this is the first, that when you, we take you to Israel, this is the, your first view of Jerusalem, because it's just stunning. And, you know, this is a modern view, so it's not the view that, that Jesus and the group would have had, but they would have seen the old city. And at that time, on this 35 acres, there's not the, the Muslim um, dome. There's the temple that Herod had built for them. And it's majestic and awesome and amazing. And, and there you are looking at it. And I think about Bartimaeus being there with Jesus. This would have been the first large city he ever saw after he was healed of blindness. You know, the first person he ever saw was Jesus. And this was one of his uh, first, it's just I, wow. And there they, they come, and, 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 and uh, Mark uh, tells us um, what happened right there. Look at, verse, look at chapter 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Steal it and bring it to me. <laughs> If anyone asks you, why are you stealing this colt? Say, well, the Lord needs it, and he'll, he'll bring it back. 
And sure enough, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. And sure enough, as they untied it, some people stand there and said, hey, what are you guys doing stealing that colt? And they answered, Jesus wants us to steal it. And the people go, okay. And when they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the ground, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Ho, Shanna, Ho, Shanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Ho, Shanna, in the highest heaven. So this is a powerful um, scene, and Jesus, Jesus chooses to ride uh, on a colt into the city. And this is not a coincidence. It carries great meaning. It harkens the people's minds back to when Solomon came into the city in the exact same way to be crowned as king. And there had been a usurper. Uh, after uh, David died, there had been someone else that was trying to take the throne. And, 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 and Solomon just... He knew he was, had already been chosen by, by David, who had passed away, to be the next king. And he, he, he just gets a, a humble colt, and he gets on the colt, and, and this crowd gathers around him. Long live the king, long live King Solomon. He comes into the city, he's anointed as king, and everything uh, is resolved. And he carries on uh, the throne of his father, uh, David. So the connection is clear. Jesus is entering Jerusalem like Solomon entered Jerusalem, and the people go nuts uh, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is what you do for royalty. They spread branches on the road. This is what you do for royalty. You don't do that for anybody else. And, and you, they wave these branches, and that's an iconic symbol because of Judas Maccabeus. 200 years before Jesus, Judas Maccabeus uh, pulled off a, a rebellion, and the people defeated the Syrian king that was over uh, Israel, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, 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 and Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem with people waving palm branches and celebrating their freedom. So the crowd's response even is, uh, reflects a very clear hope that Jesus is the one that's going to save them. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the next king. Jesus is going to, to, to somehow help them rebel from the Romans. And no better time than Passover uh, because Passover is when you, these, these, these anti, like, you know, Moses, the Egyptians, us, the Romans, uh, this is when this is all rises up. And so Jesus comes riding in on a colt, and the crowd just automatically thinks that when he gets into Jerusalem, this is going to be the start of, of gathering the masses to throw off the Roman oppression. But it's not going to happen like that. Uh, Jesus is another kind of king, and when Christ doesn't do what they want him to do in the following days, it's extremely confusing to the people of, of Jerusalem. And by the end of the week, some of these same people will be in a crowd shouting, get rid of him. He's not who we thought he was. And if he's not who we thought he was, then his words are blasphemy. Uh, and, 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 so, and, and we can see it. Look at what Jesus did after he came into Jerusalem, based on what they were expecting him to do. Verse 11 of chapter 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. Okay, good. He's going right for the temple. But then Mark says, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. That's how he starts his kingdom. He goes in and looks around at everything and then leaves he left town that night. And people are left with, what in the world? And then it was Monday. So now the next day, Monday, they're leaving Bethany. They're coming right back over the same road. 
And Jesus is hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went, out to, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Wow. And then when you look ahead, verse 20, uh, the next day, Tuesday, they come by the fig tree and it had withered and died. And the disciples were like, man, oh man. I mean, just about everything that Jesus did was, was, was confusing to them. But this would be like, good grief, why are you so mad at this tree? You know, talk about somebody who's grumpy on a Monday. I mean, get this guy a piece of fruit. Blood sugar's low. Or, uh, but later they would figure it out because the fig tree represents something. A while back he had told them a parable. Uh, Luke tells us, there was, uh, here's the story that Jesus told. There was once a man who had a fig tree that never produced fruit. So he said to his gardener, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this tree, and it never produces anything but leaves. Cut it down. Why should it use up the space? Sir, the gardener replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now, at the time he told this story, the disciples would be like, all right. I mean, they knew that the fig tree almost always in the Old Testament represented Israel. So they, they had, well, he's talking about Israel, but there's a guy who has a fig tree that never produced fruit. And Jesus is talking about himself. Or he's talking about God the Father. Um, he is the owner, and he, he plants Israel in this place in the world where they're supposed to bear this fruit. And then he says to the gardener, I've been coming around for three years. Well, three years represents Jesus. Three, and he says, for three years, I've been coming around Jerusalem looking for fruit at this temple and this tree, and it never produces anything but leaves. It's all show and no nourishment. Cut it down. But then the gardener says, well, let's, you know, let's work on it another year. And I think the gardener is the Holy Spirit. I think the story is God talking to himself and saying, well, let's give it, you know, let's see what happens on the fourth day. Uh, we got three, let's go for four, and one more year, and I'll dig around it, fertilize it. If it bears any fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Hmm. The moral of the parable, God expected Israel to bear fruit. You're like, well, those crazy Israelites. Well, the moral of the story is God expects you to bear fruit. God expects us to bear fruit. An unfruitful tree eventually gets the ax. It's like, it's like Jake being warned instead of comforted. God knows what we need to hear. Now, that's what I wish somebody would say to my chickens in my backyard. I relate to this, this story so much better since Brenda and I moved into our new house because the house came with 11 chickens in the backyard. Uh, the realtor called and said, do you want the chickens? And we're like, sure, we never had chickens. Uh, do you know anything about chickens? Absolutely not. I mean, I eat at Chick-fil-A, but that's about it. <laughs> and they said, well, these are 11 egg-laying chickens. This, by the way, is Henrietta. They all have names, and uh, she's a doll. And, uh, and it's a little peckish at times. Um, yeah, all right. So she's one of 11 egg-laying hens in my backyard, or so we were told. We moved in in November, and every morning, uh, I went out to collect these uh, fresh, organic 
GMO-free, antibiotic-free, local um, eggs. And we're thinking, 11 chickens, what are we going to do with all the eggs? But every morning I'd go out to visit the coop, no eggs. None. And so then December, every morning, go out to the coop. You know, go out there and, hey, girls, no eggs. And December then, that's when we ran out of the food that we bought with the house, the, the chicken food. So I went to buy the food, and that's when I discovered how much these chickens were costing us. <laughs> and I'm thinking, these are not pets. They're supposed to be producing something. So that's when we started pulling up the, the chicken recipes. Um, <laughs> oh, give me a break. You do the same thing. But then my friend, who's somewhat of a chicken whisperer, told me, hey, Steve, be patient, like the gardener in Jesus' story. In the wintertime, chickens slow it down. And you got to wait for the weather to warm up a little bit, and then they will start producing eggs. And sure enough, as the weather warmed up, this is what our kitchen counter looks like in the mornings. And they're awesome. These are fresh eggs. We've had so many eggs. Uh, my cholesterol is probably through the roof uh, uh, but so awesome to go out there, and 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 and, and we know that uh, at least five of our chickens now are earning their keep. <laughs> so, like the fig tree owner, owner in Jesus' story, I'm giving them a little more time. Uh, but in June, we'll pull out the chicken and dumpling recipes. We'll have you over uh, for any of them that need to go to the farm. Uh, up in heaven. Uh, but I relate to that. that God, God expects fig trees to produce figs, and I expect my chickens to produce eggs. The purpose of the fig tree is found in the figs, not in the leaves, not in, not in the beauty. The only thing that matters with a fig tree is figs, fruit, sweet Fruit. And God's talking about us because he's created us as fruit trees. And in the Old Testament and the New, he talks about fruitfulness or the lack of fruitfulness. And uh, so this is the next takeaway. It's been, it's been a few minutes since the takeaway. Do you want another one? All right, here it is, even if you don't want it. Have you figured out what your fruit is yet? Your fruit, not someone else's fruit. Your fruit. Have you figured out what kind of a tree you are? What were you created to produce? Why did God plant you here? Why did God plant you here now? And it can feel like a heavy expectation. You know, go find your life purpose. But in reality, it's just go figure out you. Uh, to start with, you know, figuring out what makes you you? What makes you different? It's in the difference that we find the fruit. What do you have to offer that is the you-iest uh, that, that, that people would miss if you didn't offer it, or that people are missing because you are holding back. Maybe not on purpose, maybe because you still haven't figured out that you're supposed to be producing fruit that others can enjoy. The fruit tree doesn't enjoy its own fruit, it's for others. What is it about you that you could be doing that would just naturally come out of your branches that others could enjoy? What is the only thing? You know, Andy, Andy Stanley, Pastor in Atlanta, Christian author, he says it like this, only do what only you can do. Stop doing the things you could do. Because it's taking the place of what you should do. Uh, Oscar Wilde says, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. 
And the Bible teaches this too, that we have unique abilities, that we're not all supposed to be the same, that God has great gifting in your life and he has the intention for you to use those gifts to bear what he calls fruit, fruit that if you don't produce it, your community will be lacking. You see, there's something you could offer us that would bless us. So what is the fruit that you're being called to produce? What is, your, what is your purpose? Well, I don't know yours. I have discovered mine, and I'm working in, the, in that gifting, and I'm trying to, to, to stop working in other areas where I'm not supposed to be working, so I have time to develop what I'm supposed to be developing. Uh, I don't know what yours are, but I do know how to tell you where to look because purpose is found where your passions and your burdens collide. Because your passions are different than other people's passions, and your burdens are different than other people's burdens. And when those collide, see, now, now your burden, that's what keeps you up at night. Your passion, that's what gets you up in the morning. Your burden, that, that's what's wrong with this world. Your passion is how you're going to fix it. It's what you're good at that you could help other people get good at. When you embrace that, you will naturally start to produce fruit, not without effort, but all of the effort that you're putting into life right now will now have a purpose. It's, it's a reason. Now, for many of us, our job is where we get a lot of fulfillment. We are fortunate enough to make money doing what, make money bearing the fruit that God calls us to bring. But for others of us, no, our job is just a job. Our job is so we can make money. Uh, for our family, our passions are in other areas. And even if we do bear any fruit at work, it, the fruit is in the relationships that we have at work. You know, for many of us, we're raising kids. Uh, Brenda and I now are involved with grandkids. That's our fruit. Our children are our fruit. It's even, God even said, go forth and be what? Fruitful. I mean, that's kind of obvious. And some of you are raising small children, and actually, that's taking up most of your time. And don't feel guilty about that, because you are, these sweet little munchkins are going to, you're, del- you're going to deliver them to the world someday. And you've got a lot of work to do cultivating that. But then uh, later on, you'll have more time uh, with some of the other stuff that you're really good at. And so don't forget about that stuff that you're really good at, because the kids will grow and, you know, they'll get digital devices, and they won't even want to talk to you. And you'll have time. For some of us, our art is our fruit. For some of us, our cooking is our fruit. And we share that with other people. And we say, oh, that's just food. No, absolutely not. It's, it's, it's love. It's hospitality. It's, it's what you're good at. It's what you, and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm too busy to do that now. See, that's the thing. Busyness. It's, what's, it's, it's like the, the smog that used to be over L.A. It's killing the health of the community. We need to figure out, you know, hey, you know what? I'm going to slow down and do some things that I really enjoy that other people seem to really enjoy as well. Because in that, we find our fruit. And there's a million ways to bear fruit. A million ways to produce something sweet and nourishing for someone else. For some of us, that mean, means that we need to go to college, to university. We need to get a postgraduate degree. Uh, we need to get our master's, our doctorate. For some of us, it means we need to finally publish. It, some of us, it, we need to do what we've always wanted to do, but life got in the way. And God is calling you in this sermon. He expects you to be fruitful. 
serve other people with what you're, you're good at. Uh, if you haven't figured this out for yourself yet, please let us help you. Just speak up and we'll coach you through it. This has become one of our church's five core values to not just be a place where people come to consume, but to be a training center where we can equip you to serve others. Our staff wrote this course called What's My Fit? And you can take this course and we walk alongside you and we help you discover what is it that, how has God uniquely created you and what does that have to do with other people so that you can have a fruit-bearing, fulfilling life. You can sign up for the next What's My Fit class at the next steps um, table. And you can say, you know what? I need some help figuring this out. It's been a very frustrating process for me. And I tend to exhaust myself with the wrong things. And I think I'm working in the the, the wrong um, areas. Um, I I remember when our son Andrew, and we raised our kids in the suburbs. And Andrew was always trying to get us to drive him over to Berkeley, Oakland, before he even had his license. Like, why do you want to go over there? And he'd say, well, I just, I just want to go and get coffee. And I just want to go hang out and buy clothes that other people have worn. And I just want to, I go, what about Stone Ridge? You know, we can buy clothes that are brand new. Oh, yeah, I want to do that. I want to go hang out. I want to talk to people. Uh, I want to take stuff for, for, for homeless people. I want to, I want to. I want to, that community is just rich and vibrant, and I want to be there. And I'm like, oh, and it's scary and dark. And, and, and I, but if you want to go, I'll take you over there. So we go. Little did we know that Andrew was being prepared to marry Sarah. And Sarah was growing up in Oakland. And we hadn't met her yet. We met Sarah here. But we saw the frustration in both Andrew and Sarah over the years. Um, and they got married, and they're, but they, they're always going over there. Anytime they had a date night, and now the, the Lord told them, you're supposed to live here. And so now they've moved over there. They're planting a church in Oakland. I'm like, okay. Yeah, and they're going to thrive and they're going to bear fruit in the soil that God called them to. What is the soil that God's calling you to today? Well, back to Jesus because he's really disappointed with Israel and he's about to do something about it. Um, God has great intentions for this little country to produce great plans for how this tiny nation was supposed to be serving the world. But they had lost, lost track of that. They had missed the point. By the time Jesus came, God's people were bearing no fruit that the rest of the world would enjoy. And there was no place like this that was more obvious than the temple. So on the next day, the, the day that he cursed the fig tree, Jesus went into the temple. Look at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus really was scaring these guys. They, they could feel their power slipping away. Every time Jesus spoke, something had to be done about this rabbi, Jesus, who had crossed over the line by coming into their turf, into their temple, and violently clearing out the, 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 the money changers' tables. And we need those money changers because the, the money from out there is dirty money, and so we bring it in here and we change it for temple money at only a 25% exchange rate. 
And the high priest is profiting from this. And, 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 and you bring a sacrifice into the temple? Well, your sacrifice is, I don't know, it's a blemish. Look at the blemish right there. That's not a blemish, that's just dirt. Well, I call it a blemish, and I'm in charge. And I'm the inspector. But this, oh, right over here, for a low, low price, we can offer you this sacrifice. And we'll take this one off your hands. We'll take it back behind and dust it off and then sell it to somebody else. By this time, not only was Israel not blessing the world, they weren't even blessing each other. It had come to the point of them ripping each other off. Religion had missed the point. And where was all this taking place? In the court of the Gentiles. And what's the court of the Gentiles? It was the space that God told them to reserve when the world wanted to come worship their God with them. They needed to have created space for them. But since they were such a standoffish religion, the world wasn't coming to their temple. Therefore, you know, it's just empty space. Let's repurpose it. So that's what they repurposed it for, was for this ungodly market where there's no prayer going on. And Jesus says, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And they heard that, and they said, did this unschooled Galilean rabbi just call him, just say the temple was his house? His house? It's not his house. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, your religion, which was so, could have been such a beautiful thing, it was created to be such a, a beautiful outward focused thing, is, has, 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 has turned into absolutely the opposite of that. And you know, we could focus on them or we could focus on us because religion has always been susceptible to distraction. I mean, the purpose of religion, its fruit, so to speak, is to draw people into worship in an environment that's incredibly outsiders motivated. That as we worship, we would even explain to someone who's a guest what it is we're doing. And as we study our Bible, we would take our time to explain to people. Uh, and as we sing these songs about uh, Ebenezer's being raised and, you know, our king being killed and whatever, that we explain to people why we even celebrate the death of our God. We're constantly to be thinking about those that are outside. But how long has religion missed the point? So see, I think the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple need to be taught in the same sermon. And I think that Christ's condemnation to Israel and cursing the fig tree is a warning to us as well of how easy it is to lose sight of our mission and the fruit that we're supposed to bearing, be bearing and, and, and what we're supposed to be oh, spending our energy and time and money on. And to ask ourselves, is God truly worshiped when we gather? Is, are our gatherings houses of prayer? When we gather in our community groups, it is, just, is it just another social group where we've got some friends? Or is it a time when we gather together where Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in their midst. And, and, and God, God desires to be worshiped in those environments. And God desires us for us to have empty chairs and not turn into these little Christian cliques. But where people are invited in that actually kind of disturb things a bit. Because this is the world that Jesus has called us to, to be a part of. So we have to ask ourselves, is God worshiped? And do the outsiders feel welcome every time that we meet? All right, I see that I'm out of time, and I need you to get out there. Uh, and we're going to leave Jesus right here. We're walking through. We've left him on a Tuesday during Passion Week. It's crazy, because by Thursday night, he'll be in custody. 
and by Friday, he'll be dead. Well, let's ponder these things. We've got three weeks till Easter, and still our lives are too busy, and we haven't been doing in Lent what we said we were going to do, where we were going to take time away to think about Jesus. You've got three weeks to, 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 to straighten that out, whereas every day you ponder the death of Christ and then the resurrection of Christ. Slow down this week and think about these things. Let me pray over you. Father, um, now we come to you thanking you for your word, thanking you for your son Jesus who came. And sometimes what Jesus says is, is confusing to us, just like life is confusing to us. So we pray your Holy Spirit would, would unravel it all and help us see even what we heard today, what it has to do with the week behind us and the week ahead of us. Father, we pray that anyone who's calling out to you, like blind Bart called out to you that day, that they would be persistent in calling out to you until they got their answered prayer. That they wouldn't give up until they're looking into your face with eyes that have just been healed. Lord, as those come forward for prayer even now, um, we pray that you would work miracles in their lives. As those go out to take these little pieces of paper that represent the fact that we're not living selfish lives. But we're living for others like you called us to. Live for others. We pray for those in our own zip code that are hurting today. And we pray that we would be a healing agency, a, a, a place where people could find hope. We pray all these things in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said.